The Holy Gospel according to Matthew, the fifth chapter. Jesus said to the disciples, You have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, You shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. If you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. And if you say, you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. So when you are offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother or sister, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are on the way to court with him, or your accuser may hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you will be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. And it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that anyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of unchastity, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not swear falsely, but carry out the vows you have made to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by earth, for it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let your word be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything more than this comes from the evil one. The Gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. At 9.27 this morning, I concluded that uh, reading from the Gospel of Matthew by saying, well, by intoning, word of God, word of life? That's a hard one. Let's pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks for your word, your word of both great comfort and of great challenge. We pray today that your word might be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, and that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. So there is a, a moment in most every young person's life that is pivotal to set them up for how they will go about in the world. This moment, for some, has to be repeated a few times before it really sets in. For a special select few of us, it becomes a lifelong struggle. The moment I want to get at is that first crucial experience of letting anger get the better of us. 
You see, it's human to be angry, isn't it? And anger isn't, is, in itself, not necessarily always a bad or a sinful emotion. It can even be good and healthy, right? We even see Jesus and the Gospels at times and places getting angry. And yet, it is just so dangerous because it puts us on a slippery slope. And things can go downhill really quick. So here is my moment. I was in the fifth grade. We had an exchange teacher that year somehow. I don't know how this worked, but it happened. We had an exchange teacher from South Africa. She shall, for the purposes of this sermon, remain nameless. Needless to say, she wasn't all that popular for a variety of reasons with the students. Let's just, let's just say that there was a mutual exchange of culture shock. One afternoon, we were lined up in the hallway to get back into class one afternoon, and she had hung up on the, the hallway leading into the room uh, posters that we had just made the week before. We had been doing a project on Canada. Except on my project, she had decided to take a Sharpie to it and write the word Canada over it four or five times because apparently that was called for. And I, I was hot. I turned around to a friend in all of the glory and power of my 10-year-old rage and exclaimed, What the heck? I hate Mrs. C. What I didn't realize was that just behind me there was another teacher who heard everything and who promptly called me out and called my teacher over and after an interrogation, about 10 minutes later, I was made to stand in front of my entire fifth grade class and teach them because apparently I knew better. Yikes. This ends that particular part of my villain origin story. Just one of my many small steps in learning the consequences of letting anger get the better of me. Now I think many of us have stories like this. Maybe you can't remember a certain moment, but it's much easier to be controlled by anger than it is to lead with kindness, isn't it? Anger is easy. Kindness is a challenge. One illustration of this that I know will land with just about every single person in this room is to be found in the local audiences of our sporting events at the high school and collegiate level. Why, just a few days ago, I was at a high school game and a parent leaned over to me about a third of the way through the game and said, Pastor James, I am about to lose my religion. <laughs> Luckily, this person remained strong and resisted. Now, as I was reading the gospel for the day, and as I was studying this week, I could feel myself beginning to squirm. And I'd be willing to wager that many of us might be in that same boat this morning. Up and down the list of commands and teachings that Jesus gives in this portion of the Sermon on the Mount, I have failed. Jesus raises the standard for things so high that it might just be impossible for any human to meet it. That in itself might be one of his points. Another point, and this is really where I want to sit this morning and focus, is this. That just because we know the rules, that we know what God teaches us, doesn't mean that we know how to use them correctly. 
You see, it's all too easy to get the law twisted. And by law, I mean all of those teachings and commands that God gives to us, whether they be in the Old Testament or the New Testament. It's easy to use the law as a means of retribution, to take it and bash someone over the head with it. It's just as easy to use the law to prop ourselves up, to make ourselves feel safe and secure, because I've got it figured out. And them over there, I'm not so sure. If you want to know why I think that many young people are missing from our churches, part, just one part of that really complicated answer, is that they have encountered one of these misuses of the law. And so it turns out that the how is just as important as the what of the law. It turns out that form is just as important as content. To get at this, I want to set the scene. In Matthew 5, Jesus has just begun his first sermon. He has been baptized in the River Jordan. He has been whisked away to the wilderness to face temptations. We get that story on the first Sunday of Lent. He's called his first disciples. He's begun his ministry. Crowds have gathered. He ascends a mountain to teach. He journeys atop that mountain in an intentional parallel that echoes the ascent of Moses to receive the Ten Commandments. And yet, something different, unexpected happens. Instead of Jesus just repeating the law word for word, as you might have expected, Jesus begins to reinterpret and reinterpret in a way that doubles down on the Old Testament law and teaching, stressing, stressing its importance, raising its standard, expanding its area of effect such that no one can escape. The parallel with Moses is important to remember for at least a few reasons. First, in the book of Exodus, the Israelite people were in need of this law because they had just gone from captives for generations, slaves in Egypt, to newly freed and in need of new direction, right? The law, the Torah, is given to finish and complete that work of Exodus, to show them a different life-giving way of doing community, something completely other than what they would have experienced in Egypt. Second, the parallel is important because it prompts us to remember that the original intent for the law was to lead to abundant life, to healthy community. Likewise, here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is continuing on that work of liberation. But this time, not only are people finding freedom, but Jesus is rescuing the law itself from captivity. There's a hint about just how needed this is that comes at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Here's how it reads from Matthew 7, verses 28 and 29. Now, when Jesus had finished saying these words... The crowds were astounded at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority, not as their scribes. It's important to note that what caught the people about the, certain, the Sermon on the Mount wasn't necessarily the content, it was the form. It was the authority that Jesus brought to it. It's hard to know exactly what having authority means here, but... It's easy to figure out that many of the scribes and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law of that particular time had succumbed to the temptation of one of the timeless misuses of God's law. They had made it 
into a weapon. Instead of using it to foster life, to build one another up, they had used it to divide and conquer, to take life, to drain it of its abundance and richness, all to prop themselves up. You might imagine that person who knows all the rules, who proclaims them boldly, and yet precisely because of that is just downright insufferable to be around. I imagine that what struck the crowd was that Jesus taught as one who wasn't repeating empty teachings, who wasn't just giving them platitudes, but as one who knew the spirit of the law apart from the letter of the law. As someone who spoke to free the law for its actual purpose, for that abundant life, for transforming our relationships, for laying the foundation and guide rails for healthy community. And yet, and yet, even still, hearing Jesus' reinterpretation of the law remains a challenge. He tightens up the law. He makes it more harsh. Because the harsh truth is that we need to be called to account. We do need to be reminded of the weight and of the gravity of our relationship. That stuff matters. And sometimes... Oftentimes, though we don't like to admit it, we find ourselves in the wrong. We need to hear that. We need to hear that especially in today's day and time because we are being bombarded with all of these cultural signals and messages that teach us that we are always right and they, whoever they are over there, are always wrong. No, not always true. Sometimes we are wrong. We need to embrace it. Accountability can be a gift, even if it's a gift that's particularly challenging to open up and unpack and use. At the same time, we need to follow Jesus' lead. We need to interpret the laws in ways that lead to life, that lead to those transformed relationships. Reflecting back on last week's reading, I think this is part of what it means to be salt and to be light, right? In our reading of the scriptures, in our living out of God's law and God's teachings, we are to season the world, to be a beacon of light that points people back to the goodness and grace of God. If we continue to make God's teachings into weapons, then I fear we've missed the point entirely. Now, I want to double down on this by coming to our first reading today from Deuteronomy 30. The title Deuteronomy itself means second Deutero law. The, the book is the story of Moses giving a retelling of the law in its entirety right before the people cross the River Jordan into the Promised Land. They've been wandering for 40 years in the wilderness. This is sort of the moment of truth. And so Moses knows that he will never arrive in the promised land with the people, right? And so he exhorts the people one last time, summarizing why God's law and why God's teaching to us is so important. Here's what he says in that reading. Choose life. Choose life. 
choose life so that you and your descendants may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying him, holding fast to him, for that means life, life to you and length of days, so that you may live in the land that the Lord swore to give to your ancestors, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Siblings, the law, God's teaching, is for life. This is the entire trajectory and thrust of the Sermon on the Mount. Be challenged by it, yes, but also open yourselves to being led by it as well. Because it can bring you, and it can bring all of us together with all of creation into a brighter future into a renewed and transformed vision of community, the community that Christ called in Matthew the kingdom of heaven, a community centered around the God who not only shows us how to live, but who also in great grace and love forgives us in our failures. After all, if there's anything that the Sermon on the Mount reveals to us, it's that we clearly can't do it alone. It's only with the promise of forgiveness in Christ and with the power and witness of God's overflowing love for us on the cross, in the resurrection, that makes this vision of life possible in the first place. And so I want to come to an end today with just one last note about how we as disciples of Christ should interpret the teachings in Scripture writ large. It's this. The law is for life, but it can only be properly interpreted in love. This means that we must hold on to the spirit of the commandments and teachings in Scripture, sometimes over their letter. I'll remind you that in other places in the gospel, Jesus loosens the restrictions of the law precisely because they inhibit life. Think here about the many times that Jesus heals on the Sabbath day against the rules per se, but for life. It also means that when you encounter weaponized proof texting, proof texting is when we open scripture and we find a verse that we really, really like and we lift it up out of its context. We post it on Facebook or whatever. Right? We often do that to support our own misguided arguments and interpretations that, to be frank, miss the point entirely. You see, God doesn't teach us to hurt us. God teaches us because God loves us. God doesn't give us the law to make us feel guilty, but always and only to lead us to life. And so we, we must take the law with great seriousness as a partner in conversation. We should bring to it our questions, but we should also let it question us. Oftentimes, those answers will rightly challenge us. Thanks be to God, we need it. But if the answers we hear don't foster love, then we need to think twice about the ways that we are reading and interpreting. The challenge, dear siblings in faith, is to always choose life. Choose life. Choose life in your reading of Scripture. Choose life in your living out of Scripture.
And with that I say, thanks be to God. Amen.